Hello and welcome to this conversation about uh, predicting the future from the stars. Uh, if you are listening to this at the Victoria and Albert Museum, either on the 23rd or the 24th of September 2017, we are not there, but we are not very, very far away. Uh, we are only a few hundred meters away. Uh, we're sitting in a radio studio at Imperial College, so just across the road. Uh, and we're only a few days away because we're recording this on Monday, uh, the 18th of September 2017. Uh, so sitting here with me is Dr. Uh, Roberto Trotta. He's uh, a reader in astrophysics at Imperial College. Uh, he's part of the Imperial Center for Inference and Cosmology, which is a collaborative effort between uh, the astrophysics groups and the statistics section at Imperial College. He's also uh, the director of the Center for Languages, Culture and Communication uh, and an academic fellow at the Data Science Institute, uh, all here at Imperial College. Uh, Roberto is very involved uh, in public engagement as well. He's the author of The Edge of the Sky, All You Need to Know About the All There Is, which is a book explaining uh, cosmology and the universe using only the thousand most common words in the English language. Uh, as for me, I'm David Banquet. I'm a designer and researcher uh, based at the RCA, the Royal College of Art, which is also just across the road. Uh, and my research uh, currently investigates uh, the claim that with enough data and powerful enough algorithms, we can predict the future. Uh, this is something we hear quite a lot these days, especially in relation to uh, the hype around data science and artificial intelligence and things like that. Um, and through this research, um, I studied uh, the history of statistics and probability, and especially the visual aspect of this. Uh, so the history of data visualization, for example. Uh, and I was surprised to find um, that beyond the kind of popular notions uh, of reading the future in the stars, there are some really deep uh, and long running links between astrology and statistics and probability, um, and that these links uh, have had huge influence and reshaped not just science but also society um, and so just as uh, big data is promising um, so many things uh, not least to predict the future uh, this owes a lot to astronomy uh, and in fact maybe is still being shaped by astronomy um, And, also, and of course, there is some much more ancestral and poetic forces at play here as well. So this is a bit the background of this, um, uh, where this the idea for this conversation uh, comes from. Uh, before we start, we just want I just want to thank uh, Paul Chancy uh, for, of Imperial for opening up this uh, wonderful brand new uh, studio for us and for helping to record this conversation. So Roberto. Um, Let's maybe get started um, by introducing astrostatistics. Could you tell us a little bit about what astrostatistics is? Astrostatistics is a fairly new discipline, and it's the idea that we can learn about our universe and the biggest questions in, in the cosmos today only by gathering data about the universe and uh, what the stars are doing, what the galaxies are doing, what the light from the Big Bang is doing or where it's coming from. Right. But not just gathering the data, we need to interpret them statistically, mathematically, 
And in order to do that, we need advanced techniques that allow us to analyze, interpret, model the data, and eventually answer the big questions we have about the universe, where it come from, where, where is it going, what is it made of? All these big questions can only be uh, made progress on today in physics by the use of very advanced, very sophisticated statistical tools to understand the data that we have gathered and we're going to be gathering about the universe. So if we, I guess as outsiders, the, uh, the common notion is that the telescope is a kind of visual instrument. Is it um, more accurate to say that you're really, you're seeing the cosmos through numbers? Yes, in fact, I am a cosmologist. I study uh -huh. the universe, uh, and but I never go to a telescope. I, I never observe uh, the, the universe myself. So all my time is spent in front of a computer screen, right. often debugging lengthy code. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the romantic notion of the astronomer has really left, uh, has really now been replaced by essentially data scientists, if you like who, of course, put on the lens of a physicist interpreting those numbers and those mm -hmm. sets of data. But yes, very much so. Astronomy is no longer somebody in the backyard making discoveries, although some of it still happens now, even now and then. It's no longer Galileo seeing the moons of Jupiter for the first time, although I recommend doing that because it's fantastic. It's a great experience. It's really uh, big numbers, big data, big machines, computers, and crunching the numbers. And so have you ever used um I, I hear there is a, a, a data observatory at Imperial, which is which looks straight out of a minority report on the pictures. It's a big wall of screen which is curved uh, and, and displaying all sorts of graphs and, and things from the, the human genome to, uh, to economics uh, mm. data. Have you ever used that for your work? Yes, yes. We are in fact developing a, a project called the Map of the Universe designed mm -hmm. for the Data Science Institute and it's six, 163 million pixels of pixel real estate. And the idea is that to, we want to be able to display on this amazing facility the entire human knowledge about the universe. All Every single object discovered in the universe will be on that wall. And I'm glad you mentioned my minority report because our eventual goal will be precisely to be able to navigate the data with gestures and movements, pretty much like Tom Cruise did in that, in that movie. So yes, we're getting there. Wow, looking forward to that. Um, so I have another question as, a, as an introductory one um, about the notion of well, the, the, the word prediction. Um, is there a difference between the meaning of that word in a, in a scientific or a statistical context and the more maybe colloquial uses? Um, is, are they different things, statistical prediction and, and just prediction? Or I guess statistical prediction comes, like many other things that are attached to the word statistics, with something we don't really consider much in real life, which is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. a, a way of quantified uncertainty. A prediction is pretty much worthless, I guess, in science as in the financial markets, etc., unless you can attach an uncertainty to it. Once you have predicted something for the future, are you fairly sure it will happen the way you've predicted or are you just guessing and so your the chances are really 50-50? And so a lot of the work, perhaps most of the work in making scientific predictions is about not just predicting one number, something happening at this time and place, but equally putting a, 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 an estimation of how certain you are of your prediction. And of course, the best theories are the ones that make precise predictions by that, by, by which we mean that the, the uncertainty of those predictions is small or non-existent 
in which case this is the ideal tool for science because then you go mm -hmm. out you make the observation and if the data that come back agree with your prediction within the uncertainties both of the data and of the prediction then you have confirmed your prediction mm -hmm. and if not then you falsified it and you throw the theory away and that's why science progresses i see so is this a, a, a bayesian approach is that the the word when you have um this kind of measure of belief so it's not only the 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 prediction itself but the associated level of uncertainty is that right or? yes Bayesian is perhaps more general even than that it, it, it can encompass this but more generally speaking it's one of the two versions of probability theory right, yeah. perhaps in many ways the many ways the more modern version as opposed to so-called frequentist classic version mm -hmm. which and so Bayesianism entertains the idea that anything we say in terms of probabilities is to some degree a, a statement about the, um, the the subject's degree of belief in that proposition be, mm -hmm. be it a scientific proposition or anything else really um, and therefore it's much more general than the classic version of statistics and but it lends the the, the flank of course to mm -hmm. the um, criticism that it's not fully objective because if it's subjective my degree of belief can be different from yours and of mm -hmm. course science is, is, is mostly about intersubjectivity or, or objectivity even if you want and therefore is, is that really the, the, the right tool for science some critics, critic, uh, critics uh, say mm -hmm. um, but in many ways it allows us to cast many problems in a statistical framework that would otherwise be inaccessible and so we can actually use it to make powerful predictions and powerful inferences that's to say uh, powerful statements about the state of nature based on the data that we've seen and so what's interesting is that um, now of course we're turning more and more things into data right so it's not maybe just not just nature but increasingly society is becoming predicted through these methods as well um. absolutely and I, and I find it fascinating that people are trying to use tools that have been developed for science perhaps to predict or or make um, links for societal phenomena and I, I cannot but think back to this um, short story by Asimov, I think the title was The Average Man, where uh, the storyline is that every four years the US elections come up and one person is selected by an algorithm mm -hmm. and that person gets uh, taken to the poll station and get, the person is asked a number of questions about what they think about the price of eggs and this and that and out of this apparently unrelated question the algorithm uh, extracts the, 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 the president, the, the name of the president and the idea being that statistics and, and the statistic, the statistical polling techniques have become so good in, in that story that you don't need, you know, exit polls are so sophisticated now that you just need to, the, the, the answer of one single person to predict what everybody else would have voted. <laughs> this is, nice is idea. This is great, yeah, yeah. And a perfect lead into my next point, uh, which is uh, about, so taking a little bit of a historical uh, perspective, uh, it seems to me at least from a, a, a admittedly outsider perspective to all this, that uh, throughout history there's been these moments where um, it basically went, um, there was a progress in astronomy, say we were able to predict the return of a comet like Halley or something like that, uh, and then the mathematical methods were, were basically transferred to um, other domains. So basically, oh, if we can predict the stars, we can predict 
everything, mm -hmm. including a society. Mm. Um, and one example of this um, is also the average man, <laughs> but a different one from uh, Ketelet, who was a, a Belgian uh, astronomer, but uh, who took it upon himself to um, to do this transfer. So he, he took the math from, from astronomy and um, and started to predict uh, society through an idea of the average man. Uh, and so the idea here is that uh, in astronomy, if you have uh, observations, um, they're quite messy and error prone. But if you if you manage to have a smooth curve that runs through them, that curve is, is more true mm -hmm. than any of the messy and potentially mm -hmm. uh, uh, error um, uh, observations and that so that this average man was this kind of idea that um, he's the kind of perfect template against which of which we are all messy and imperfect mm. versions <laughs> yes. right uh, and, and and lots of, of these uh, ideas have have uh, persisted to today so for example the um, the BMI the body mass index mm -hmm. uh, which has the kind of thresholds under which you uh, might consider it overweight or underweight uh, comes straight from uh, Ketelet's work ah. uh, so this idea of average of the norm uh, uh, okay. of things like that so uh, this is quite fascinating to me that um, astronomy seems to have been the kind of uh, pioneer of some of these things and then we kind of exchange mm. or transfer the, the 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 prediction or the ways to make predictions in astronomy to mm. other domains mm. do you know any other examples of this or do you well I, I think it's absolutely true that in the 19th century astronomy was really leading in terms of giving scientists mathematicians ideas that would then be become part and parcel of what is now known as statistics. So many, many of the, all the early techniques that are now classic in statistics came from astronomical related phenomena. I'm thinking of the work of Legendre or, or uh, Gauss, Laplace, all of them they did major advances in mathematics and statistics based on astronomical problems that were working on for which no mathematics was known sufficient mm. uh, and sufficient to solve those problems. And so really astronomy motivated that, that development. Um, but certainly an electron or a star or a galaxy are in many ways much simpler than humans because they're, they're all the same, first of all, <laughs> while humans are all different. Mm -hmm. But it is true that there is a regularity in big numbers, be it big numbers of stars, galaxies, or human beings. This idea that uh, all these random errors or these uncertainties and all of these differences, they average out somehow in the long run. And so that's, I guess, at the heart of what people are uh, using when they try to transplant these methods that have been developed for the exact sciences into sociology or, 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 or other domains of, of society. But the question really is, that, is whether or not those assumptions that underlie the methods that we use, whether they're, they're, they're really um, met and useful in domains that are different from the ones from which they've been, they've been derived. And so in, in astronomy, in physics, in science, we have ways of checking whether or not those assumptions actually hold true and therefore whether the results of the methods have any value. In many other fields, people just assume this is the case because nothing else can be done really. And so I, I think there, there are cases where uh, just taking the methods and applying them to a completely different field without paying attention to these kind of important details might lead people to conclusions that are spurious just because the method gives us conclusions doesn't mean that they are necessarily right or scientific or, mm. or, or objective or anything to go by. 
Which brings us to economics. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was also quite fascinated by this, another of these transfers in the 19th century, uh, the business astronomers, as uh, they are called in, in one uh, brilliant paper. Um, so things like, for example, double entry bookkeeping was mm -hmm. apparently an invention of astronomy. Mm. Um, and then around this time of kind of uncertainty and um, people doubting the, the, the legitimacy of uh, financial speculation, mm. uh, apparently there was this, this kind of borrowing uh, of, of maths, but also of, of the kind of objectivity of science to justify certain mm. uh, practices as, you know, proper and mm -hmm. kind of scientific. Um, and it was, it was often the same people doing the, the astronomy and the things like uh, life insurance premiums and mm. calculating these uh, risks and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so today it's, it's quite, I mean, it can be uh, quite puzzling to an outsider uh, why, for example, people on Wall Street have uh, PhDs in physics. Um, what is there like a universal mathematics at play here that uh, physicians have access to and then they can just um, help everyone else? It's certainly true that we see a lot of this phenomenon here at Imperial. Many of our graduate students in astronomy who have PhDs in astronomy and cosmology and theoretical physics, they then go off and work in the city and, and in these hedge funds that are very successful at using very advanced mathematical models to make vast sums of money. And so it's a very attractive career path for, mm -hmm. for data scientists of, of any kind. Um, I think what, what the common theme here, and perhaps it goes back to what you were saying about the, the, the original business astronomer, businessman, uh, is that the mathematics that's needed to drive this largely speculative uh, financial work is sometimes fairly complex, it's fairly advanced. Um, it's, it, it builds some models that are not necessarily true in any sense in the business sector, as far as I understand them, but they're good. They're good representations of what the data movements are like. And so, while they do make forecasts and predictions, um, those do not necessarily hold true. And in fact, you know, after a few weeks or a few months, they expire because the market adjusts. And so you have to keep you need to keep changing your practice in order, in order to stay ahead of the crowd and continue making money off of fluctuations while, while other, your competitors adjust to your behavior. So there's this feedback loop, loop that is non-existent in, 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 in physics, in the universe. Of course, nothing of what we do influences anything that goes on in the universe, while everything that you do on the markets has got a feedback inbuilt. And so, but the mathematics is the underlying maths is sufficiently similar, and the the mindset rather than the maths, I would say, is similar. The mindset of interpreting the numbers, interpreting the data, building models that describe this behavior and that can be projected into the future for a useful amount of time. This is the bread and butter of what we do in astronomy and cosmology, albeit applied to very different situations. And that is why I think our students and postdocs that are very skilled in this kind of um, uh, domains are very, very prized in, in, in the city and, and, and Wall Street. That's great. Um, so, and this, is this also generalizable to, so data science is, is everywhere. Mm. Now it's been said to be the sexiest job of the 21st century. <laughs> um, and it, there's this famous quote from uh, John, John Tucky, the best thing about being a statistician is that you get to play in everyone's backyard. 
Mm. And so if you replace statistician with data scientists, mm. you know, it's it rings very true today, right? Like yeah. there is data scientists in, in companies and in research labs and governments. Uh, and they're in all of our backyards or back pockets uh, mm. through our, our smartphones and, um, and other devices. Um, so is this, I mean, it's kind of striking to me this um, notion of the the general laws of motion that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know some people are able to calculate mm-hmm. uh, and predict and mm-hmm. and and help pretty much everyone with the same tools. Mm. That's kind of a, a fascinating idea. But, but I don't think that data science per se is the silver bullet that people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, while it is undoubtedly very useful in many domains of life, and indeed we couldn't run modern society without it anymore, um, especially for businesses and companies. It's not clear that the added value that data science brings per se is actually something that, that really moves the business along or helps you in terms of your competitors. Um, and, and so you really have to look at it in terms of uh, what is it that data science, the kind of insight that data science, if at all, can bring to whatever it is that you're doing. And uh, sometimes it is simply not true that the answer is in the data, because if you don't have a good model for what is going on, the data are just meaningless. It's just gibberish. You can't really glean any meaningful connection. It's all about building connections, really, and getting insight, be it for a business decision, or be it about how your customers behave, be it um, if you are at the NHS, what your patients want, etc. You, you need to get insight. In order to get insight, I don't think that the data are enough. You need somebody be, you know, behind the model that interprets what's coming out of this data and what the what the figures actually mean and that is not the, the job for an algorithm an algorithm can help you glean this and indeed without algorithms we wouldn't be able to do anything mm-hmm. but there has to be a human understanding a human capacity for putting the pieces together behind it all in order to make sense of what comes out mm-hmm. and so it's not just about big data and more data <laughs> no no because it's more of the same and and, and more of more rubbish if mm-hmm. you don't know what it is so i i wanted to ask as well about um astronomy is astronomy truly the true big data the biggest <laughs> i mean the uh my assumption coming into this is that uh so astronomical data and also um genetics mm. are the two kind of fields in which the biggest data sets are mm-hmm. Um, are used and and that these fields are are actually leading the development of the tools mm. um, that then everyone else uses. But this might be uh, mistaken. What, what no, I think, think I think it's it's true. Um, although big data now are no longer the preserve of astronomy or biology because we all, the the data collection capability of humankind has grown exponentially thanks to those devices that we carry with us that generate an enormous amount of data. Most of it. useless perhaps, but there are nuggets of gold hidden in there, I'm sure. So our data generation capability has increased enormously, but still astronomy has, you know, just big numbers, just to give you a sense. We're talking about maybe 50 billion galaxies in the visible universe, each one of them with about 300 billion stars in it. And for each one of those objects, we can in principle gather a a very complex, multidimensional data set about position, velocity, energy, distribution, colors, all the rest of it. So it's, it's really, really mind-boggling mm-hmm. the amount of data that we can, in principle, gather. And we're building instruments that will be able to harvest all of this data. For example, the Square Kilometer Array, 
which is a, a new radio telescope being built across the desert, both in South Africa and Australia. Um, is going to be gathering in a year in, in, a, in a year worth of operations going to be gathering as many data as three times the, in, the whole internet traffic of 2015 per year. Wow! So this kind and, and it's going to use an amount of computing power just to process those data that uh, exceeds the capabilities of the largest supercomputers today. So we're talking about data sets for which even just computing averages becomes a, a statistical mathematical challenge because you can't do it. It's so big, so complex. And so yes, I think astronomy will lead the way in this way. And like we've seen in the past 20 years, the solutions that will be developed precisely for these kind of challenges that are aimed at ultimately enhancing our understanding and knowledge of the universe will be in a few in, in, in the turnaround time of just a few years will be applicable to vast domains of society like they have in the past. So mm -hmm. it's really about investing energies and, and, and brains into fundamental science that can very quickly then come to bear on very practical questions in everyday life, which mm -hmm. is something that people often overlook, uh, the impact of that. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's enormous. And, and so I'm curious as well about your take on the, um, so we, we've seen how the, the kind of technical aspect of um, these fields driving, you know, inventing new tools and um, computing power and, and things like that what about the uh, the kind of imaginary side of this mm. um again coming into this my assumption is that um genetics kind of took over on the prediction front than than astronomy so in terms of popular culture mm -hmm. um the predictive power of genetics is much more um maybe talked about today in terms of, you know, your character, your, mm -hmm. your genome, certain mm -hmm. profiles, you know, determine who you are and who you become rather than mm -hmm. um, maybe the stars or <laughs> things like that. Right. What, um, what do you make of that in terms of the, the imaginary? Yeah, it's clear that the possibility of A, predicting and B, perhaps acting on our human genetic uh, makeup. Mm -hmm. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about personalized medicine, for example, and the potential of that are much closer to home in many ways and to the lives of people than, than uh, many of the questions that we ask in astrophysics or cosmology. Uh, but going back to my previous point, the often overlooked point is that the kind of tools and instruments that we develop for astronomy and astrophysics are oftentimes found in our pockets 10 years down the line in mobile phones and GPS systems and all the rest of it. And only people don't realize the connection. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this fundamental blue sky research is really, really instrumental to many, many advances. But in terms of the imagination, uh, it's clear that while genetics and medicine are much closer to our everyday lives, there is another, I think, common and shared domain of investigation, which is the question that we all have about where did it all come from? and why are we here? Are there others in the universe? Uh, is there another Earth, Earth somewhere waiting to be found, etc.? And while none of those questions might impact on our day-to-day -day life anytime soon, imagine the profound change, cultural change or upheaval that might bring the discovery one day that there are other living things in the universe. We, we haven't found them yet, but I believe it's only a matter of time. You know, to find another habitable planet, to find signs of life elsewhere in the universe, that's enormous. We can't underestimate the, the, the impact, the psychological, cultural impact that this discovery will have, undoubtedly, on, if not on us, on our children. We're not so far away, I think. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so moving on to um, 
go back to the data. Mm. <laughs> um, I wanted to discuss with you the notion of raw data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we often hear this phrase, the raw data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is actually a brilliant book about this um, by Lisa Gittelman called Raw Data is an Oxymoron. That's mm-hmm. uh, from 2013. Uh, and in it, she, she says, um, or she writes that um, raw data is often presented as the stuff of truth itself. Uh, like almost like a natural material and we hear this with for example with data mining Mm. and things like that this kind of unmediated Mm. objective uh, material that's extracted directly from nature Mm -hmm. Um, and instead she argues that um, all data must be understood as framed and framing that's that is um, that raw data doesn't exist and that everything about data is constructed um, socially and also culturally. Um, that no, that's not to say that it's necessarily a bad thing or illegitimate or whatever, mm-hmm. but um, especially when it when it is in, in social contexts, mm-hmm. um, these things are often presented as like a scientific truth, mm-hmm. um, wherein they are not because certain things can be counted and others not, etc. Um, and so to discuss this, uh, we've, we've talked about um, one of the chapters in the book, uh, which is brilliant. Uh, it's called Where is that moon anyway? The problem of interpreting historical solar eclipse observations um, by Stanley, Matthew Stanley, Matthew Stanley. Mm-hmm. Matthew Stanley. Um, and so he talks about um, these eclipse um, data and the the, the predictions about uh, eclipses, uh, solar eclipses. Um, one of the kind of textbook examples of raw data that looks, on the face of it looks really easy, mm-hmm. uh, but actually there is the the small uh, kind of grain of sand in the cogs um, called secular acceleration, uh, which means that all these calculations about the movements of the moon are slightly off. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you have astronomers going through um, ancient texts about battles in ancient Greece to confirm whether uh, the eclipse that's suspected to have happened did happen and whether or not, uh, judging from the language of the the descriptions, uh, whether or not these were partial or total eclipses um, and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of striking that, uh, so here we see this con- cultural construction at, at work, but it's also striking that um, you know, you can you can download uh, from NASA. You can download the uh, the five million millennium canon of solar eclipses, which has the catalog of solar eclipses from minus two thousand to plus three thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a, a bit of a uh, buffer there on uh, eclipse prediction. Um, so what's the the kind of balance between these two things? So on the one hand, um, this story in the book, and then the. Uh, the catalog from NASA, which has exactly one number for each mm. of these eclipses or one mm. date, quite precise. Mm. Uh, and I find it fascinating. This is a, a beautiful example mm-hmm. of a field and domain where you really see the tension between the positivist version of science with its objectifying, powerful uh, look on nature and, and yeah. 
the absent observer, you know, all the observer, all the sun is doing is observing nature, not influencing it, and, and just being stepping back and just uh, assessing facts as they are in an objective or producer fashion and the rest of it. But equally, the idea that to a point, science is a social construction. Not, this is not to say that it doesn't work, this is not to say that there is a maths behind it, but there is to say that, like many other things, it's done by human participants and is subject to the erratic uh, behavior of humans, uh, especially if you go back 3,000 years in time and you want to rely on cuneiform uh, tablets to find, figure out whether a total eclipse happened at that place at that time. Um, and it's, it was fascinating for me to read this, this, this particular bit of the book because uh, um, it, it transpires how astronomers little, only by little by little realize that actually in order to, to carry out this program of interpreting ancient text, they couldn't just be modern astronomers. Their, all their knowledge about eclipses and, and, and secular acceleration and the moon-earth system were almost useless when they actually were confronted with interpreting ancient text. And so they had to pick up skills and tools that were very much in the humanities and mm -hmm. sociology perhaps and psychology even, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, which I think broadened their horizons quite a bit, which is a good thing. And it goes to showing that in order to be an effective scientist, not just in this example, but you know, you need more things than just your technical tools. You need to be aware of the, the context of these observations and the data and, and the rest of it. And so it, it seems to me that uh, this is a, an example where the, the, the raw data really just seem through heavy human filtering and and distinguishing between the two becomes a matter of opinion almost, or certainly a matter of, of scholarly debate, rather like you have in the humanities, which is perfectly accepted, of course. You can have very different points of view in the humanities, and it's not about being right or wrong, it's about building an argument and being persuasive and all the rest of it. In science, of course, we are very very based on a binary yes or no answer. Is this true or false? Is Einstein right or is Newton right? And and but this is just part of the of the story. I think as we as our questions become more complex, we have to recognize that science builds on the um, scaffolding of human knowledge overall, and it's a human practice, and as such, is subject to this kind of vagaries. Have you ever had to check your data against ancient Greek? Um... Uh, accounts of battles no, or anything not. else like that? No, I, I, would have, I would love to have something to do that goes a little bit in, in that direction. Perhaps the closest I've come to is actually in a, in a tangential branch of my work. Um, I, I uh, sometimes work as a statistical consultant for the private sector, um, which is a job I enjoy very much because it, in many ways it brings together statistical expertise with other things that are less technical but equally important. And so in this particular case, I was asked to uh, uh, work as, a, as an expert witness to establish whether or not certain quality assurance record had been manufactured or not. So there were data whose believability was put in question because there were patents in this data that it was alleged could not have arisen naturally. And so my job was to reverse engineer the patent and form an opinion on whether or not those data were indeed the raw data or else had they been fabricated in, the, in, in some way and and so so there, there was a maths aspect of it, a statistic aspect of it, was also an aspect of the context. How were the data gathered? Could they have been fabricated? Could they have been changed in this way or that? So I think it, it comes close, but it wasn't ancient Babylon or anything like that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Did they, uh, what, what was your findings? Uh, Did they do that it? they were, that they had been fabricated. Oh, really? Yes, yes, yes. Bad data. 
Bad data, yes, exactly. <laughs> Never trust the data. <laughs> okay, so my next point uh, is about putting data science against divination. Okay. And is asking whether data science is a modern divination. Um, there is a quote from Patrick Curry, who is a, a scholar studying divination. Uh, he, he, he defines divination as any ritual and its associated tradition performed in order to ask a more than human intelligence for guidance. And that strikes me as a potential definition of data science as well. Uh, I don't know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful definition. If you take it out of context and you show it to data scientists, they'll, they'll probably say, oh, is he talking about machine learning? <laughs> yeah, yeah no, exactly. So, yeah. And especially with the more than human intelligence, that yeah. uh, to me that echoes AI. a lot of what's uh, being said about AI um, yeah. at the moment. Moment. That's yeah. right. That's right. And yeah, there, there's from a technical point of view, there's lots to be said about precisely that aspect. The fact that many, all of these AI algorithms really are black boxes. Mm, well, um, that's yeah. Yeah, you know, there is you know, there's this machine learning techniques which we use some in astronomy. In fact, we develop some of them. You put in some data on one end, you construct a black box, and then you train the black box in a way that's outside your control, effectively, and then you get an answer out. And then you check your answer against other data that you haven't shown the black box before and you see whether the black box is doing well. And there are some stunning cases where uh, black box is trained on uh, skin cancers, for example, images of skin cancer have outperformed experienced uh, physicians in diagnosing the probability of a skin cancer in new patients in, mm. in a very clear way. But the limitation is, of course, that it's a black box. So the, the, the artificial intelligence, as it were, should be called, in my opinion, artificial ignorance, perhaps, because the artificial intelligence itself doesn't know what it is that it's predicting or what it is that it's discovering. And you can't ask it. You can't reverse engineer the black box and say, OK, now you're performing better than a physician that has spent 20 years time learning about cancer. What's the trick? Mm -hmm. The artificial intelligence doesn't know. And so we can't learn anything from it. So. It is a form of uh, reading the, the, the leaves, uh, tea leaves, and whatnot. Of course, it's steeped in 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 in, in science, uh, but there is no insight. And that's that goes back to my point I was making mm -hmm. before. But the, in order to advance knowledge, you need insight, and and AI in the form that it's being practiced today doesn't have any of that. Indeed, it doesn't have anything at all in that respect. And this, well, yeah, I guess it's the black box is a great point. And it's this kind of abstract authority that comes from something we don't fully understand mm. that becomes almost like a, like a godlike entity, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> it's, yes. yeah, 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 it can be, it can Cause be. Because like what that. else, what else do we have that, you know, knows everything and we don't know anything about and <laughs> 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 kind of gets into yes. God like territory very yeah. quickly yeah that's right that's right and i think it, it is there's other aspect to that i think probably probably in boardrooms and the like um when when business decisions have to be made if machine learning or ai comes back with an answer this is what's going to happen this is i think people in those boardrooms who often have close to no technical understanding of what's going on because their job is to be business leaders not data scientists they will take it as either gospel or divination or or a response that they, they can then build on with absolute faith without understanding neither the limitations nor the shortcomings of this kind of response. So there is a little bit of a danger of us being led down a tunnel by this blind 
guide if you like mm-hmm. but i mean to me like comparing it comparing the two data science and divination is not necessarily um to dismiss anything mm-hmm. i think what's important or maybe more interesting is to recognize that we've always had divination mm. um there is another quote here from joshua rami um saying that divination is a a universal dimension of human culture, a tradition-bound mode of taking chance seriously. So in his argument, it's like, um, you know, he's not dismissing anything. Mm. It's just like we've always had divination Mm. and relied on these kinds of modes of querying Mm. the unknown because Mm. it's like a coping strategy. Mm. Um, And so it's not to say that, you know, dragging... It's not to drag divination, uh, data science down <laughs> with divination, but just um, in in some cases, obviously this is not like a generalized thing, but in some cases calling it what it is mm. and saying this is the best we have and this is maybe close to divination or, you know. Yeah, no, that, I, I, I take your point about not passing judgment and in, in a very... Uh, in a very humanistic sort of perspective, and I, I, I do like that. Um, at the same time, if you're talking about a basis for rational decision-making, for example, which ultimately all prediction is for, right? We want to know the future because we want to inform our present about what's going to happen and perhaps change our actions in, uh, accordingly, right? Um, and uh, then, um, of course, those methods of data science are have a track record of performance in that respect, be it in finance, be it in, in many, many domains. Uh, then in this, from this point of view, then divination becomes more of a, of a psychological need, perhaps, of humankind of being reassured about the future or being, be, or feel perhaps in control about the future, while data science can be seen as the cold hand of mathematics coming and telling you, Yes, but your psychological state really doesn't matter. This is what's going to happen. Put an error bar on this. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm glad you used the word uh, rational because I have another quote here, and this still is the last one. But um, uh, so this is uh, in a, in an essay in Aeon magazine about how economists uh, became our er- our era's astrologers, um, oh. and and this is a, a really great quote. I think is um, to be rational is simply to think in ratios like the ratios that govern the geometry of the stars ah, interesting very interesting so i like that the rationality yeah. is you know seen as something that's you just pay attention to ratios mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this is can take many forms mm-hmm. you know if you decide that your rationality is the distance between two stars or the position of a particular star in the sky that mm-hmm. could also be a rationality yes. because in that view it's a ratio so it's rational yes 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 and i know that in your own work of course you're taking those ratios the, the cosmic ratios and uh-huh. putting them to work in very different domains yeah and yeah, yeah and seeing kind of stretching that <laughs> yeah that, yeah um yeah seeing how far we can stretch the rational right. <laughs> or the rationality yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly true that astronomy and the regularity of astronomy i think that's an important point that um it's not often discussed but the fact that we live on a planet that gives us access from time immemorial to the regularity of the night sky and the regularity of the cycle of nature, but essentially the cycle of the planets and, and, and the sun, etc. Um, the clockwork regularity of the alternation of stars, etc., in the sky is what 
perhaps got us thinking in, in the midst, midst of all the chaos of the early history of humankind, well, there's got to be some sort of order, some sort of principle that governs the universe, ultimately what you know, called the rational principle perhaps, although at the time it wasn't seen mm -hmm. like that. But I think the, the, the idea of this um, cyclic returning of things in the sky is a very powerful drive for um, curiosity and for trying to figure out what is this principle? Is it God? Is it many gods? Is it force of nature? Is it Newton's gravity? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is it? And that that has been historically a very powerful thing to the point that I think you know if we if we had developed as a species on a planet permanently covered in clouds, for example, which is entirely thinkable, what would our civilization look like today? Who knows? That's true. Yeah, because the even the periodicity of the without even you know any extra meaning that we might assign to the position of the stars, they are. Uh, a, a, a repeating periodic pattern mm -hmm. so trying to match that with events mm. uh, whether it's being eaten by tigers or whatever in or you know hurricanes or whatever mm. was happening down on earth mm -hmm. is actually quite sensible yeah. <laughs> it's like early uh, time series data with a periodicity to it exactly and try to you assign causal influence to correlations that people saw so mm. it's it's very much a game that we still play with other tools today absolutely so perhaps the last uh, point on this um there is a brilliant uh although quite critical uh article uh, called cloudy logic by robin james in the new inquiry and she um she makes this parallel uh in quite a negative way <laughs> well, or being quite critical mm -hmm. of big data and, and uh -huh. things like that and she uses uh, Adorno's um, um, study of astrology uh, and in saying that in, in seeing how these things are quite similar in her view and um, and saying that basically that it's this notion of bringing things down to earth and, and you were talking earlier about the um, the training the black box and the problem with that is that the only futures that we can ever predict are in the training mm. right so there is no chance it seems at least for newness that's right or for a surprise that's right um and in an even even darker um sense uh it only reproduces the most kind of conventional conservative norms and um, uh, biases and superstitions mm -hmm. that are embedded in that training mm -hmm. that's right um, so what's how do we how do we avoid just repeating the past over and over again mm. uh, as you know m more and more areas of life and society are being starting to be governed by mm. systems like this um, by, by keeping our mind open to the unexpected and by keeping, if we can, a human element in, in, in the big machine that we're building around all these areas of life. Um, and I think one of the main problems is that um, we tend now to be driven by metrics in all sorts of areas of life and efficiency and anything that drives those metrics up and drives efficiency up 
must be a good thing and no question asked. And I think that is what is really driving a lot of this development is this idea that if you can optimize this and optimize that, you're going to have a better world. But better for whom, we have to ask. And where is the human element in it? And where is the novelty? Where is the unexpected? Where is chance? Where is uh, uh, newness, surprise? Uh, we've come to think perhaps as a society that all the things are bad because they're all associated with things we cannot predict and we cannot cope with and so it's a it's a sort of an anxiety reducing drive if we can get rid of all the things life would be better but it would also be more boring and and and, and less deep i think mm -hmm. so uh, in, in all areas of life big and small i think we need to keep asking ourselves is this really going to make life better or is it just being driven by somebody trying to make this thing more efficient that's great um finally just to conclude uh how do you see what do you see on on your horizon from from your um perspective in as a scientist and as a as an uh, astrophysician uh, what do you see as the next big question or maybe the next big challenges mm. for society as well well, in terms of my field specifically, I think we will see in the next 10 to 20 years big discoveries that will really change the way we think about the universe. I'm thinking about discovering dark matter in the lab. I'm thinking about perhaps finding habitable planets elsewhere in the universe, gravitational waves from the early universe. There's all sorts of great big discoveries that are coming that we are gearing up towards and, and, and that will be in the news and will change our understanding of our place in the universe in, in, in big ways. Um, from a point of view of society, I, I think we are uh, living in a world that, that's increasingly interconnected and, and where big data play a big role, but also a world in which many algorithmic solutions are being driven by perhaps a Silicon Valley type of culture that says that for every problem there is an app. <laughs> and that risks, in my opinion, um, dehumanizing our way of living and also uh, reducing our shared humanity to just a collection of apps and, big, and and things that we have on our phone and, and, and likes <laughs> and likes and shares and whatnot and we're more than that and i think as a society we might come i hope we might come to a place where we realize that this is just one dimension important no doubt but that the the, the richness of life lies in 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 its many pattern dimensions not just this one and hopefully you know i, I don't see this coming anytime soon and perhaps things have to get worse before they can get better but I think we need to keep the discourse going and, and as well when we educate our students and the next generation of for example Imperial where we educate the next generation of scientists and, and, and business people and engineers and medics to educate them not just in being excellent at what they do technologically and, and scientifically but also on the understanding of what the global world is about and how these different issues interconnect and how they underpin everything that we do great amazing thank you so much roberto uh, for this conversation really great to talk to you uh, you can follow roberto's work uh, on um, at imperial college and also on twitter he's at um at r underscore trotta t-r-o-t-t-a um, thanks again to paul chancy for uh recording and setting us up in this great um new studio uh, at imperial college I'm David Banke and uh, thank you for listening.